Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bounds. On the chaotic streets of 1970s Harlem, the grubby and exciting affairs of the criminal underworld often creep up and out of the city's steaming manhole covers, spilling over into civilian society in the shape of shady deals, intricate stick-ups and bursts of gunfire. Here, politics, class, violence and corruption collide in the dingy back streets and in smart brownstones and townhouses too. Ray Carney, the protagonist of Colson Whitehead's Crook Manifesto, the sequel to his 2021 novel Harlem Shuffle, is at the very epicentre of this world. He's constantly divided between his above-board life as a successful furniture salesman and the crooked side hustles he's inherited from his late father. Crook Manifesto is as exciting as they come, and it's no surprise given the novel's author, Colson Whitehead, is also the best-selling writer of 11 works of fiction and non-fiction and a two-time winner of the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction. The culture team headed down to Bristol to meet Colson as part of his European speaking tour to discuss the book, but before we get into our conversation, here he is reading a passage. In this excerpt, Carney traverses the city he calls home and reflects on where he's come from and his now comfortable life on the aptly named Strivers Row. Carney caught the one train at 125th Street and grabbed a seat on the east side of the car. The Manhattan Viaduct lifted the train tracks 168 feet above Broadway and 125th, and if you didn't have your nose in a book or the daily paper or a tattered ledger of regrets, the view was a pleasant reprieve from the gloomy tunnel. It held no charm for Carney. If he sat on the opposite side, he was liable to see his old place, caddy corner to the tracks, which for many years had made him a captive audience to the Viaduct's longest-running show. It was the same performance, repeated without variation, the curtain rising multiple times an hour, relentlessly exploring through choreography and noise a single theme of the human condition, you can't afford a better apartment. Colson, thank you so much for your time today and congratulations. I'm on a beautiful second helping of this trilogy. There's so many things to pick up on in Crook Manifesto, this, this second novel in this series. Um, but the first, the first thing that I'd like to ask you about is Harlem and New York itself. It's such a, it's such a busy, vibrant, unputdownable character in the book. Um, and I wanted to ask you first about your research process for it, your own memories of the city and how they kind of came together, the fact and the fiction you walking the streets and looking at things on Google Maps, no doubt, and how they came together to form the soul of the book, I guess. Sure, yeah. I mean, I was a, a very young child in the early 70s, so mm. don't have many memories of this period, so that does mean a lot of research. What I do recall was that the city was dirty, people were tense, you know, crime was at an all-time high. That doesn't get you very far in the, in the book. <laughs> uh, so, um, you know, I've been on this run of doing what people call historical novels. For me, mm -hmm. they're just novels set in the past, but people like that term, so I'll go with it. <laughs> and usually, you know, primary sources are a great resource. In Underground Railroad, it was slave narratives. In Nickel Boys, it was survivor accounts from the Dozier Academy, the model for the mm -hmm. Nickel Academy. And this book, it's been newspapers, whether I'm trying to figure out what's happening in New York City politically that I can use for the book. Sometimes it's a bigger event in Crook Manifesto, 
the opening section takes place in 1971, and there's a big historic police corruption investigation called the, the Knapp Commission underway, and that allows me to bring in my corrupt detective Munson into the story. As you said, there's a lot of walking around. You know, I lived there when I was a little kid, but never hung around Harlem that much. So it's as alien to me, you know, as as Georgia in the Underground mm-hmm. Railroad. Yeah. So I would just walk around, location scouting, trying to figure out where would be a good block on, on 125th for Carney to work, a good place for him to grow up, across from the subway tracks. And if it's across from the subway tracks, is it better to be 127th Street or 135th Street? And which... What can you see from those windows? So all that kind of stuff. Yeah, which has got light, which has got shade at certain times of day that where certain acts might be perpetrated or certain people might hang out, believably, I suppose. But as you point out in both of these novels so far, so much changes in, in this area and indeed in the whole city, right? Yeah, and also, you know, stays the same. I mean, yeah. uh, if you go down 125th Street now, you're going to see The Gap, you're going to see Starbucks and Shake Shack and all the big corporate stores you see everywhere, you see in London and Bristol. But go one block north, then you're gonna see the townhouses and brownstones that have been there for 150 years. And they were the homes of the first Italian, German, Jewish settlers from Europe who came, who were replaced by black folks from the South. And now 130 years later, the great grandkids of those first white settlers are coming back to gentrified Harlem, Mm -hmm. because it's cheap. And yeah. uh, the cycle continues. So yeah. I find that, you know, very lovely to see and also, you know, uh, fun to chronicle. Yeah. And there's something, as you say, you grew up around there, certain parts of it, but it wasn't, your, you know, you don't have a deep memory, I suppose, at that time. And I'm sure your research was deep, but there's something happily unknowable. It feels like the narrator and it feels certainly the reader, certain types of reader anyway, are getting lost in these streets, happily lost. Even at the end of this, of Crook Manifesto, Ray Carney, your, your protagonist, goes to a place underneath an underpass, a disused biscuit factory that he's never been to and he kind of can't believe he, there's an area of the city that even he doesn't know as a kind of tried and distrusted and tested <laughs> member of the community. So I felt like you're, you're happily getting lost as a writer. Colton. No, totally. I mean, that area, it's a real place. It's mm. a warehouse district in the 130s of uh, West Harlem. And you never go, you never walk there. You're on the overpass, you zip by it. And then when you're in a criminal mind, you think, wouldn't it be a good place to stash somebody for a couple of days <laughs> as a hostage? You rubbing um, your hands together yeah, at, the, yeah. at the study desk, right? And yeah. also, I can't think of a single movie that it's been in. You know, yeah. I can't think of any book that it's been in. So it's, even though it's right in the middle of my home island, mm-hmm. um, I've never seen it. Part of the, the sort of zinging, living fabric of the city is, is the language that is, seems to emanate from the sidewalks, obviously from your characters' mouths. We're talking about a heist novel and a genre novel. I know that I'm not putting quote marks around it, but it is there is such a thing. It uses some of those tropes and some of those epigrams and zingers that are part of the, I guess, noirish kind of tradition as well. They seem to kind of come up from the pavement and emanate from your characters, your characters' mouths. What about getting the language of the city down? Was that easier than traipsing the streets to research each corner? Well, I mean, I, there's a... <clears throat> A New York personality I'm trying to channel, and I'm sure mm. it, it overlaps with you know people in different cities. Mm. You know, you're cranky, you have little patience, and whether you're a master criminal or a petty thief or a Wall Street fat cat or someone just trying to get home so they can make dinner for your kids, there's a certain you know survival attitude and a cynicism. 
you know, one of the big models for the book is a movie called The Taking of Pelham 123. It's an early 70s movie about some criminals who take a subway car hostage and put all the commuters up for ransom. And even though there are machine guns in their faces, it's just a bunch of complaining, whining New Yorkers in this subway (laughs) car, and there's something beautiful about it. No matter what happens to you, you remain your essential New Yorkness. And so I'm trying to capture that definitely in in Carney, but also the supporting cast. You know, we're all stuck on this island together. Try and make it home, you know, at, at the end of the day. Yeah. Personally, I love that, that all your characters get zingers. I'd like to broaden out your cast a little bit as we go on, but I want to tackle Ray Carney. I don't know whether I do want to tackle him. He's a quiet man, but a piece he of would, work. You would knock him down. <laughs> I would, I would, he's, he's not the muscle in this, in this story. <laughs> in this operation, no, indeed. No, Pepper, Pepper I, I would probably uh, struggle with. But Ray Carney, he's the protagonist in Harlem Shuffle. Um, he is here in Crook Manifesto, and I'm sure in, in the third novel. But he's a man who's sort of hiding in plain sight, isn't he? He's... He gets some great lines in the book, but he doesn't speak the most out of anyone in the book. And I wondered how known you wanted him to be. I mean, he's also sort of cunningly the narrator of a lot of it and then cuts back to his own speech. But I wondered how known you wanted him to be to the reader. He unfolds slowly, I guess, doesn't he? Well, you see most of the, most of the action through his eyes, mm. uh, but he doesn't really even know himself. I mean, mm-hmm. he does various things uh, in the book, you know, starts a revenge scheme, you know, initiates an investigation in, in Crook Manifesto in his own way. And he's not even sure of his, you know, he thinks he knows why he's doing it, but, you know, the motives are much darker. You know, the same way all of us are, are doing things because of, you know, kinks and bumps in our personality and, and psychology. And so, um, you know, he has one version of what's going on around him. And, you know, the reader um, has a better perspective uh, because we see other folks and we get to see him without his own self-deception. Yes, because a lot of his paragraphs end with the narrator making a conclusion about his actions that he might not have quite noticed about them himself. He knows himself and he doesn't know himself. And he doesn't. Yeah, say, I mean, I, I, I like that interplay. You know? Yeah. Definitely uh, yeah. Pepper will do things and, and Karn will do things that have repercussions that they're unaware of. You know, they upset the, the Harlem order by taking out uh, a minor player and that has ramifications. And so... Um, you know, the, the master reader, the master viewer, audience member uh, is privy to all of that. And the narrator is, is the ringmaster. And, and, and what Ray Carney is, is he's a believable family man. He is a believable small time fence man and crook. But he's, he's a very believable furniture salesman. And this, is, this was the bit that I was surprised to find so convincing in the book, Colson, that his mental rearrangement of his store, of which he's rightfully proud, and what, which sofa goes next to which dinette. I feel like I've bought stuff from him and got fed up with it and sold it on and bought something else from him. I feel like I've grown up in his shop (laughs) after just two of these books. How did you get the language? How did you get that patter down and all that knowledge about these esoteric pieces of, or maybe not esoteric pieces of 60s, 70s furniture? Well, I've been doing it for a long time. My first book is called The Intuitionist and it's about elevator inspectors. Yes. The premise of the book is that elevator inspectors are sort of the keepers of the city. They're very, very important. Elevators are important. They enable a modern metropolis. And so um, I have to, with a straight face, make this absurd proposition true. And uh, in Zone 1, my novel about the zombie apocalypse, Mm -hmm. my main characters are sweepers, people who are going door to door, picking up the, the extra dead, the extra zombies who are 
laying around so that we can restart civilization. And I have to make up a culture for them. And so in terms of the language for, for Ray Carney, it's taken from catalogs, you know, um, in 2023, no, no matter what interest you have, somebody has put it up on Pinterest. Right. And so I can go to Pinterest <laughs> and find 50s and 60s furniture catalogs. I can go to newspapers and look up advertisements and steal all that language. And then there's this, his psychology. You know, no matter what's happening, he's very... Yeah, he's very much a salesman, and so there'll be bullets zipping by and Molotov cocktails blowing up, and he's <laughs> examining the very fine parquet floors next to the couch <laughs> he's hiding, hiding next to. So, so that's him, and it's fun to write, and, and there is a lot of humor in the book, and, and, yeah. and that becomes a, a, a good conduit for him. I mean, this is, might seem like a strange comparison to make. It reminded me of passages of American Psycho in the list, the kind of crazy listing of the qualities of certain items, hi-fi systems in that case, and things like that, and these sort of solid cornerstones of American furnishings of the 60s and 70s. I can see you're arching your eyebrows as you write that, I'm sure, right? Well, yeah, I haven't, haven't read that, uh, uh, but I think... You know, from what I know about that book and definitely other books of mine, mm. you know, there is a critique of consumer culture. You know, I'm reveling in yeah. these shiny things. I'm uh, disdaining them. But we're all implicated in our late capitalist society and our, <laughs> our lovely items. And so yes. um, uh, whether I'm doing it through Carney or, you know, different characters in other books of mine, mm. that's uh, a subject I keep coming back to. And furniture itself, just finally on furniture, this is not, this might seem strange to make this the cornerstone of our conversation, but it struck me that furniture is the the little bit of luxury that certain parts of this neighbourhood can afford, right? There's a reality to being a furniture salesman as, as, as opposed to a real estate uh, agent or something like this, and that there is something, it goes in and out of fashion, there is something hopefully not entirely temporary, but something temporary about it. And that he's sorting out deals for his buddies, Carney is, and he's able to express some largesse to people he needs to do a favour for in the criminal world and just some family members and, and, and such forth. So there's something, about, there's something about rearranging the furniture in a city, which might be a pointless thing, like rearranging it on the Titanic. But I wondered if there was something in that for him as a No, guy. I mean, I, I identify with a lot of what you just said because we just moved to a new place and the washer and dryer don't work. And so I was going through consumer reports, like which ones should we get, which ones can we afford, which ones will fit. And I'm like, wow, you know, I've reached a, po a point in my bourgeois lifestyle where I can afford the high-end washer dryer, which hopefully we'll have for a long time. Yeah. Furniture appliances are very aspirational, you know, whether you're a, a newlywed family or... A, someone with the kids on the way, a family buying their second living room set. You know, all your stages of who you are in the city are encoded in your, in your, in your furniture. It's your starter dinette set. It's the dinette set you, you get when you move to a bigger apartment, you have more kids. And so whether he's helping out, giving a, a deal to some gangsters who've been hassling him, mm -hmm. or giving a break to uh, a young couple who just moved to the city, you know, Carney is engaged in this uh, uh, attempt to ascend the social ladder and, and assemble all these different totems that, that signify that we were ascending. Yeah, the sofas don't mean nothing. And they're handy to hide behind. Sure, I yes, yes. When, right. the, when the bullets are flying, As you want a Cushman Wakefield sofa. Thank you, for, <laughs> thank you for the name check. <laughs> and talking of which, you know, the narrator, your language, turns on a sixpence between moments of 
exposition and, and maybe Carney's thoughts, Pepper's thoughts, your protagonist's thoughts. And then suddenly the language unfurls from around a street corner. It's very sudden. I mean, that's the exercising of a finely wrought muscle. But I wondered about that, whether that was something you felt, it seems very original to me, whether that has, you, you know that as something is handed down from genre, from heist movies, whether it's a filmic thing or a novelistic thing. But that's a joy to behold in the books, this sudden click into action. Well, I think that's walking in a city, you turn a corner, there's a whole different situation, you know, from minute to minute as you're walking around town. The situation is changing. I want to be able to slow down the action and have these contemplative moments, whether it's Carney thinking about his life, the narrator musing about the city. Sometimes the narrator takes over things and, mm-hmm. and speaks from his or her uh, Olympic you know, vantage. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to have the violence, uh, you know, the pleasures of the genre fiction. And so it's a balancing act. You know, each book has three different novellas you know, that are linked together, and hopefully the themes are... Uh, being carried from section to section, but they also have beginning, middle, and end. They're all about 110 pages, and so um, I want to keep them brisk because they are self-contained stories in a way, but also I want to have do things I like, which is tell jokes and also contemplate the city and existence and also have some people getting their heads bashed in. Yeah, good. So all those things. <laughs> it's a healthy mix. Yes, yeah, I think yes, we can all yeah, agree. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and writing something under the auspices of a genre, I suppose, but also within the stru- your self-imposed structure, these three novellas within, a, within a, a novel and then three novels in a trilogy. It gives... I, w- I wonder whether that stricture gives you actually gives you loads of license whether it's so much easier to write or it sets your imagination free and the character's ability to run across Harlem free or whether it's it's really tough to keep within that world it's you know it's everything I mean I know what to expect um you know if a a story's coming in shorter or longer am I going to go with that or stick to my system the reader knows that you know, I think over time there's a certain rhythm to each story, and so you know that you're you're nearing the end or you're nearing the middle. I and the reader are you know sort of know what the general map is, mm-hmm. and then you know I'm, I'm a big plotter and planner, and I think for a, a plot heavy book you should do that, but you also have to have the the joy of discovery. And so while I do have a lot of the capers and jobs and adventures mapped out, you know I have to also allow the book to go in its own own direction or else it's just a, a dead blueprint. And, yeah. you know, once or twice I've had st- projects where I, I, I map it out so totally, it's like, what's the point of, of actually writing it? You know, it's like, I'm going to, my painting's called white and I'm going to paint a white canvas white. And it's like, well, there, that's, that's the whole idea. You just did it. There's no actual reason to... And then on Tuesday, I'm going to... <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I felt that there were happily moments in Crook Manifesto where characters definitely w- were doing things that were outside of your control somehow. I mean, in a really good way, not like there were moments of excessive longer or anything like that with scenes, but these f- people felt that they had uh, gotten it more exotic than the page even somehow. Well, I think once you get to page 600, you know, <laughs> yeah, when it's all over, this will be 1,100 page or 1,200 mm. page story of one person and, and their city. But if you can get the characters done, and I don't like when people say, like, my characters are talking to me, it's so corny. Uh, you're actually <laughs> yeah. making them do things. But um, once you do get to know them and they've appeared enough times, I know how Pepper will respond to this kind of stimuli. I know if I put Pepper with this kind of character, he'll react this way. And it's a, just a familiarity 
with these people even writing for hundreds of pages. Yeah. I noticed something in, in both the books so far, which I understood to be a real generosity towards your characters, no matter how small the, the person is on the page or, or how small the, the action that they might take in the story. They might just be a henchman or a hoodlum. or a, there, There's obviously people that walk in and out of barbershops and have to get haircuts and walk across the road in order for a bus to pass that they can hide behind, etc. But... I felt like there was a real generosity of tone from the narrator and I think from you to all of these people's lives that no character doesn't get a backstory and a zinger and a point of view on the world and it's always different to somebody else's subtly or completely if that was true if that was one of your intentions and if so if that came from an idea of crime writers often writers generally in 200 years of America at least in your book Walking past people like this on the street, never knowing what their job was or what their name was or what they, who their mum was, for example. You've written a different kind of book here. And I wondered if that was on purpose or whether that was just me, me, me kind of making shapes in the clouds. Um, not, you know, not on purpose, rejecting or embracing different you know, bits of the crime genre mm. you know, in what you're describing. But going back to the, the crowded subway car, which is a, a powerful image for me and it's, it's in the book. Mm. I mentioned it because of uh, the taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3. Mm. Um, we're all New Yorkers and we are, you know, no matter what we're doing and, and where we fall on the, the moral spectrum, how we spent our days, you know, the shape of our hopes. You know, we're basically we're, we're on a subway just trying to get home <laughs> at the end of the day in, in one piece. And I'm trying to capture that. We're all in the same, the same tenements, the same buildings. And there's a drama upstairs. There's a drama downstairs from you in a different apartment. But we're always trying to make our way. And so if I can transcend my own misanthropy and get down the page. <laughs> so I'm wrong to think it's a respect thing, right? But it does seem like that. It comes off as a respect thing for all of these people, no matter how lowly. No, yes. They get a, they get a go and they get a joke, as you say. And yeah, it's, it, I, I think that there's a lot of heart and soul to that, it felt to me as a reader anyway. Can I ask you about names? Sure, sure, yeah. Because I've got, I don't need to read them out to you, but just so that people know the, some of the fabric of some of the, the nomenclature and the naming in the book. We have Bumpy John, Johnson, Tommy Shush, Church Wiley, Chink Montague, uh, Nicky Boots, Notch Walker, Long James, etc. It's such a, you've got so, <laughs> so many good names for hoods, henchmen, gangsters, just people out and about. I feel like you've got like a scrabble bag of tiles and you're shaking it and seeing what the best combinations are of first name and last name. Or how, how do these names come it's, about? It's, Some it's, of them maybe are real. It's ultimately how, how they sound. And Bumpy Johnson was a real person. Uh, yeah. But Notch Walker sounds like they're like sort of see them even if you... Well, then uh, like Notch is on the bedpost, but Notch is, maybe he's got a murder bedpost. Sure, exactly. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so um, I do have, you know, all my stuff is in my notebooks on my phone and yeah. I'm on a subway or walking down the street or in the middle of the night, I'm, I'm jotting things down. At this point, I do have a name file, and sometimes it's an old school name. Like, aren't a lot of Gus's anymore, you know? Mm. So, you know, 50s, 60s, Gus seems to fit. Sometimes it's an adjective, notch. Like, you know, it's very evocative. You're making up your own story when you, when you, when you hear it. Yeah. And then I am, yes, I am mixing and matching. There are weird things like I wanted to have, there's a Richard Pryor type character. Mm. And I, he entered, he had one or two scenes, and then I came up with the name like Roscoe and then Pope, Roscoe Pope. And I was like... It's great, it's he, so he, believable. He has to be a bigger character, and so I, named, <laughs> so I put him on The Comedian, and it wasn't until like 
two weeks later, I was like, oh, RP, Richard Pryor, Roscoe Pope. <laughs> and so it's like subliminal connections and, it's what, and what sounds right. And sometimes I'm just going to Wikipedia's page of 1950s Negro League players <laughs> and getting some old school <laughs> black name, you know. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah, it sounds like somebody hung out with my grandfather. Yeah. Know? No, they seemed, they, were, they seemed, I mean, they really vibrate off the page. And those, as I say, everyone, every character gets big or small gets a bite of the cherry, but uh, I thought their n- naming as well was supremely generous. And like that was, there were some moments of, of head scratching that went into those as well. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. Or maybe it's just the magic, well, the magic got, iPhone file. Oh, this, this name is really cool. Does he deserve it? Or, or does she <laughs> yeah. deserve it? You know, what am I saving it for? Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned Roscoe Pope. I mean, this is an episode in book two of Crook Manifesto, where Zippo Flood, another great name, he becomes a film director. He goes from being an artist, a kind of loft artist, to a to a to a film director, and he gets into that black exploitation vibe and makes Nefertiti, Secret Agent Nefertiti. Now I feel like I've watched this film many sure, times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that's super specific, and the action that we see take place, at least in terms of the film, because a lot unfolds outside of the film, but due to the film, with the the film's made actress Lucinda Cole. But I feel like that I've seen that film being shot in, in Carney's furniture store now. What about that? Did that come from your time on film sets? Did that come from I know that you're a big film buff and that you've based it now, you know, that you we talk about Pelham One, Two, Three and various other things, Serpico and various other things, or things that be made into films. What about putting a whole film section into that? Was that just a, a an era thing? You know, pop culture, you know, I used to be a critic, you know, yeah. I was raised on, on T V mm-hmm. and black exploitation movies and, and crime movies and horror and science fiction. I want to get into the book. You know, these are actors playing criminals and playing cops who then get sucked up into a criminal scheme. And so there's that, you know, sort of play between the real and the fake. Mm. I knew Zippo. I thought Zippo would be a cool character to unpack, you know, kind of black artist, outlaw, um, eccentric uh, weirdo. And so there are, you know, characters in the first book that I wanted to expand upon it and give them their, give them their due find them something to get a handle on. And then, um, again, when I was a kid, there weren't a lot of movies starring black black people. They weren't always made by black artists. But, you know, whenever Blackula came on and Blackula figures in, in, in the story mm-hmm. or Shaft, we'd all, you know, crowd around the TV, my family, my siblings, and, and see some black faces. And then you hope that Bernie Casey, this actor, that actor, will, you know, continue to, continue to thrive, believe Lee Williams. And then, of course, they don't because of the rules of, of, of Hollywood and, and what they'll allow black actors to do. And so there's that. There's the sadness of promise of, of being full of promise and then being betrayed by the system, whether it's Lucinda Cole, someone who's a starlet in the 60s and, and is rising and then is uh, an extra on, you know, sort of crummy sitcoms and cop shows in the 70s, or Roscoe Pope, Richard Pryor, who comes into his own artistically... And, you know, burns up literally, but also burns out as he sort of sells out. What can Hollywood do with him, this kind of outlaw black figure? Tame him and, and reduce him to sort of mediocrity. And so, so there's a lot, you know, a lot to play with there in terms of some of the, the broader themes. Yeah, so they're all kind of, you say as you go through the book or your narrative, and kind of comes to the conclusion that all these people are kind of left to hang out to dry, basically, right? It's, it's, it's tough. I wanted to ask you just finally about about the heists themselves because you you said you're a planner these are the bits that in terms of when where they come in the action i guess because that that first book 
of this is a massive incendiary thing, constant. <laughs> it's, it's so thrilling. Book one of Crook Manifesto, where Carney, led by Munson, goes on this crazy spree. Well, you really can't imagine how many corners and twists and turns they can go on in a night. What about the heists, these crimes? For me, they, must, they felt like they must be the most difficult thing to engineer and dream up and sketch out on a, on a post-it note wall or whatever. I don't know how you do it. But is, what's the, 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 the actual engineering of the crime seems like it would be tough to me to do. Well, you don't want to get letters from someone saying, oh, that kind of safe was not invented until 1984. <laughs> you know, uh, so my editor is very detail-oriented. I'm trying to not get notes from him. So he's the first person I think of. Uh, you know, you plot and you plan and you try to make it realistic. Um, yeah. think uh, at a certain point it gets hard because, you know, how many heists can you describe before you start repeating yourself? And so there's a super big heist in, in, in Harlem Shuffle where they break into the hotel. Mm-hmm. And then there are um, smaller heists that are, you know, not described in as much detail because, you know, the heist isn't the, isn't the purpose. It's the character interaction. It's Carney. Uh, but, you know, coming up with, say, the fried chicken heist, uh, coming up with the video console yeah. heist, those are, you know, moments that speak to the culture of the time. Uh, what do you do when you hijack a, a truck full of TVs and it turns out to be Magnavox Odyssey? Yes. It's like a, an early video game console you've never even heard of, like yeah. table tennis. They took them like, out of the like, box uh, and they had these bits of stri- you know, bits of wire and it was like, what are these things? I know, yeah, 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 yeah. So it's, um, <clears throat> you know, it's about finding stuff that's, Finding stuff that's period appropriate, that can be humorous, and speaks to you know the uh, the character of, of Pepper and Carney, but you know definitely now I'm in the third book. How does this heist differ from the earlier heists? You know how can I not repeat myself? And so it gets harder as as the story goes on because you you want to keep it fresh and find different ways to test uh, the characters. Yeah, it comes back to the city. I feel like. There is a sunrise, perhaps, at the end of, of Crook Manifesto, around the sunset. But it all comes back to that, the unknowable nature, that kind of crazy warren of, of the city. The whole thing, downtown to Harlem, but especially Harlem, I suppose, as you Well, you're, you, yeah, he's being tested, and yeah. you know, the whole city's being tested every day. And then do you give up? Do you thrive? Do you move away? Or do you, you, know, do you endure and, and stay in the city that made you and is, and is constantly putting pressure on you? We just hope you can uh, remember the combination to the safe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Colson Whitehead, thank you very much. Thank you, thank you. And that is all for this week. My thanks to Colson Whitehead. His new novel, Crook Manifesto, is out now, published by Fleet, and it has our hearty recommendation. Monocle on Culture is produced by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Steph Chung-Gu, and Steph also edits the show. We'll be back at the same time next week. But until then, from me, Robert Bounds, thanks for tuning in. Thank you.